John chapter 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Tonight will be our, Lord willing, to be our final message in our study of the doctrines of grace. We'll look at the, the P in the TULIP acronym, the Perseverance of the Saints. The Perseverance of the Saints. Um, Louis Burkhoff said, The doctrine of the Perseverance of the Saints is they whom God has regenerated and effectually called to a state of grace can neither totally nor finally fall away from that state, but shall certainly persevere thereunto to the end and be eternally saved. Another definition we might use is perseverance is that continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer by which the work of divine grace that is begun in the heart is continued and brought to completion. It is because God never forsakes His work that believers continue to stand to the very end. I like that definition because it stresses the work of God in our salvation. We persevere because of what God does for us and what God does in us. It is the continuous operation of the Holy Spirit in the believer. Not a one-time operation of the Holy Spirit and not a hope that the Holy Spirit will work in us, but it is a continual operation of the Spirit where that divine grace that the Spirit begins in us is continued in us and brought all the way to completion. You know, it's only churches who hold to the doctrines of grace to have this doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Rome doesn't have a doctrine of perseverance. They don't have any assurance whatsoever of their salvation. They have a doctrine of works that you can lose your salvation. You gain it by what you do in combination with what God does, sort of a synergistic salvation, so it makes sense that they would have a synergistic um, Christian walk that if you work in cooperation, that's what synergistic would be, is you're working in cooperation with God in order to gain your salvation, where it would only make sense that you would work in cooperation to keep that salvation, which you in part had something to do with. But it's not just the Roman Catholics, it's also the semi-Pelagians, anybody that believes that you have a crucial element of salvation a crucial hand in your salvation that you are somehow saved by part of your work and part of God's work. They both deny a perseverance of the saints. Lutherans and uh, Arminians have a version of the perseverance of saints, but it's very unsure that you can have it and but maybe you can lose it. But it's only those who hold to the doctrines of grace that have this assurance that we are blessed with. The Bible talks that we should have assurance, and that assurance is not only 
available and possible, but it is a blessing of our salvation to be sure in what God has done for us. Jesus tells us that those he gives eternal life shall never perish. And we can be confident in that very promise that no man shall pluck us out of his hand. And so it is we who believe the doctrines of grace that can wholeheartedly confirm what the scriptures say about the perseverance of the saints, that we will not totally or finally fall away from that state um, to which God has um, graciously saved us in. Now I think that there is a problem in some Baptist churches that in order to ensure Christians serve the Lord, they tend to err on the side of responsibility of man without stressing God's work in us or just leaving it out totally and going to the passages where it talks about the responsibility of man and the commands to obey and stressing that so that we won't be um, lax in our obedience to our Lord. There was a man back in the Puritan days named Richard Baxter, and he was a um, a chaplain for the for the army, I believe, during the times of the, their civil war. And as he was there amongst the soldiers, well, there was just they were antinomians. Those are the kind of people who were against the law, and so. They were just lax in their living, and they said, well, we can live however we want to because there are no, uh, there's nothing that we have to do. There's um, There's no guidance of the scriptures. We can live it up however we want. So they, they were very immoral people and using the grace of God as lasciviousness, as a cloak for their lasciviousness. So he stressed the, the, uh, responsibility and obedience to the point that he denied um, justification by faith. That he, he combined the sanctification and the continuing of our walk and following the Lord with, uh, with uh, justification in order to keep people from sinning. So the, the, answer, the answer to one error is not to go the opposite direction in the, in the other error. So if, if you drive in the right side of the road, if you drive off the right side of the road into the ditch, the answer is not to drive to the left side of the road and go into that ditch. I don't want to avoid the ditch on the right, so I'm going to drive in the ditch on the left, and that way I'll be sure not to go in the ditch on the right. Well, that's what he did, but that's not what we want to do. We don't want to say, it's not an either or. It's not either that you're saved, that God will save us all the way to the end, or it's all up to you. And it's not, it's either God uh, saves us all the way to the end or human responsibility. So we don't need to pit these truths against each other because they're not against each other in the scripture. It's not responsibility or grace. It's not grace or obedience because the, these truths don't fight each other in the scripture. They, they are tr- they're both true. And so you don't try to protect one doctrine by overstressing it to the exclusion of all other doctrines. So we don't try to protect obedience to God's law 
by de-emphasizing God's grace and salvation. Or we don't want to say, we don't want to de-emphasize obedience to the, and say that there's, there's nothing in following Christ in the scriptures and say, well, once saved, always saved in the sense that uh, there's not a change in the, the heart of the Christian. So we'll look at the overall view of what the Bible has to say about this and, and see that it's not an either or, but it's a balanced truth. One man said perseverance may be defined as that continuous operation of the spirit in the believer. And as we, and as God works in us, he never forsakes that work in us. And he continues that work in us all the way to the very end. So there's three ways we're going to look at this tonight. And we're going to look for proofs of this truth from exposition, from the scriptures. Proofs from analysis. And so we're going to take truths and some of the truths we've already seen and some other truths of the Bible. And from analysis of those truths, we're going to draw out uh, proofs of this doctrine based upon other things that are true. And then thirdly, we'll see proofs from admonitions. And so we're going to look at the warning passages. Or look at some of the passages, just a couple of them anyway, where people will say, well, see, it says here that you can lose your salvation. Or it says here that salvation ultimately is up to you. That God starts the work, but you have to finish it. And if you don't finish it, then you'll fall away. And we'll, see, we'll examine a few of those to see that um, in reality... It is a work of God in us. So let's start with our text. We find that Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So God's people will hear his voice. Why? Because he knows them. He came to die for them. He came to save them. And they will follow him. And Jesus gives them eternal life, and he promises that they shall never perish. And so we have Christ knowing his sheep, knowing his people. The Lord saved me. And all those years ago, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, and I know them, all of his sheep. So Jesus knew me before I was born. He knew me before the foundation of the world. And he gives unto all of his people eternal life. Not temporary life, but eternal life. And so if you have eternal life, it stands to reason that you will never perish. A life that is eternal, by definition, doesn't come to an end. But it is an everlasting, eternal life that God gives us. And we shall never perish. Nor shall we be removed or plucked out of the hand of God. So that is the will of God. That is the promise of God. That God's people will hear his voice. They will follow him. That they will have eternal life that he gives them. And then they will never perish. So God's people will be saved. Those that he knows and has chosen, they will be saved. They also will follow him. So the Bible also doesn't know anything about people who walk around and don't know that they're saved until they get to heaven and are shocked to find out that the Lord saved them. But they know him. 
and they follow him, and they have everlasting life, and they won't perish, or they won't be plucked out of his hands. That's God's work and God's promise that we will persevere all the way to the end. Why? For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance, it says in Romans 11, 29. Now, in that context, it's talking to the nation of Israel, but we can, we can apply those truths of God's grace um, to the nation, to us as individuals, that the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God doesn't change his mind. God didn't call you unto salvation, give you his spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't quicken you unto life, draw you to Christ, give you faith to believe, work within you fruit unto, unto, to, uh, unto life, and then say, no, I changed my mind. I know I've chosen you. I know I called you. I know I gave you life. I know I'm working fruit in you. And I know I've been with you for so many years, but no, I changed my mind. I take it back. I take back my gifts. I take back my calling. I take back my salvation. No, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. He doesn't change his mind. For God to change his mind about something would be for God to gain new information that he didn't have previously. Or for God to initially make a mistake. Or for God to come to a conclusion that is better than the one he originally arrived at. God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, he doesn't take back what he is given when he has given his gifts and calling in love. Let's look over in the book of Philippians chapter number 1. We'll look at this for a little while. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6. Now, Philippians has a lot to say about this truth, um, but we're just going to look at this one tonight. Philippians uh, chapter number 1 and verse number 6. So Paul says, being confident. So he's talking about the fellowship of the gospel that they have. They have the fellowship in the gospel that Jesus Christ died, was buried, and he rose again for our salvation. That Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again for our justification. And that all who trust and believe in the work of Jesus Christ shall be saved. And they had a fellowship in this gospel, in this truth, in this faith. And so Paul says, being confident of this very thing. What is he confident? That he, he is confident his confidence is in God. His confidence is in Christ. Their fellowship is in the gospel of Christ. His confidence is in the Lord God. His confidence is in Christ. He's confident of this very thing. He, God, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So his confidence is not in what they were doing and how well that they did it, or how hard that they tried, or how holy that they were in their works. His confidence was in this one very thing, that God, 
key. That's his confidence. And what did God do? They gave Paul confidence that, that he could rejoice in the fellowship of the gospel from the very first until that very time. From the time that they first believed until he writes this letter, where is his confidence in, in what God has done? What has God done? That he which begun a good work. From the first day until now, God began a good work. They didn't begin the good work by their faith. They didn't begin the good work by their yieldedness. They didn't begin a good work by their choice. It was God that began the good work in them. Well, what good work did he begin in them? He gave them life. Was started in the covenant of redemption, the, the, the plan of God, and, and God chose them unto salvation. But the Holy Spirit gave them life. Regeneration. They were born again. Jesus said, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can a man be born again? Well, it's the work of the Spirit. He which began the work in them of regeneration, of grace, of giving them faith, of giving them repentance, of actually repenting them, of, of God changing them, making them a new creatures, giving them a new life. God began that good work in them. God began that good work in you. You who love the Lord Jesus, God began a good work in you. You didn't begin the good work and God picks up the slack. No, God began a good work. That's why Paul was confident. I have no confidence in my, myself, but I have confidence in the God that began a good work in me. And what will God do once he begins that good work? Well, the gifts and calling of God without, or without repentance. And so when God begins that good work, he will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. When God starts his work, he finishes his work. So God doesn't change his mind, and God doesn't leave a job half done. Our God willed for us to, for his elect to be saved. And God the Holy Spirit gives us life. He borns us again. He gives us faith. He indwells us. And he begun, began that good work. And he will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. So it's not about, the perseverance of the saints is not about how hard we strive and how tight we hang on. It is truly about God beginning the good work in us and will perform the good work in us until the day of Christ Jesus. He will continue that work in us. He will um, finish that work. Now, if we take this in conjunction with chapter 2 and verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, here's one of those passages that you know, people get worried about. They say, oh, I have to doubt my salvation. I have to 
I have to always be looking inward and working it out with fear and trembling. I have to doubt my salvation continually because I'm never good enough. Well, let's think about the context here. Paul just begins this letter in confidence in the gospel. And he was confident that the God who started the work in their hearts will finish it. But if you go to chapter number two, there's only one problem that's addressed in this book. And it's addressed here in this chapter. That there were there was a little bit of contention amongst a couple of the people there in, in the church. And so Paul, in verse number three, chapter two, is talking about the strife that was a result of, of, of vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Not to look to your own things, but to look to the things of others. Then he says, let this mind be in you, which was in Christ, who, who humbled himself, made himself of no reputation, took on the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, was obedient unto the death of the death of the cross. Wherefore, in verse number 12. So the context of this passage is, don't be proud and vainglorious in thinking about yourself, but rather be humble like Christ. And as Christ humbled himself, wherefore, my beloved, Not wherefore, you lazy Christians. Not wherefore, you backsliding heathens. He said, wherefore, my beloved, my loved ones, precious saints, who God has begun a good work in you. You've, you have obeyed, not just in my presence, but even when I'm not there. But now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. That you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. You see what he's saying here. There, were, there was strife. There was pride. There was vainglory. He said, we're, we're followers of Christ. The Christ, the Son of God, who left the glories of heaven and entered into this world below and, and humbled himself even to the death of the cross that you might have everlasting life. Now, God has started to work in you and will perform it to the end. He has started this work of salvation. Now consider yourself with fear and trembling, not with, with pride and vainglory. Because, okay, why would you be in a church? Why would you be proud and vainglorious? Why would there be strife? Because you were looking out for number one, not esteeming others better than yourself. Because you were looking out for your own things, not for the things of other people. Not 
proud because of the work that you're doing, but to remember that the salvation that God has worked in us is working out fruit in our life. And so it is God who is working in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. So what the point of this is, is that we would remember that God did not save us because of our works. And we're not to doubt our salvation. That's not what Paul is saying. But we are to to work out what God has worked in us. Remembering that the very reason that we desire to be in God's house as God's people, the very reason we desire to do good works is because he's working that will in us and gives us the strength to do his will. So this is what God wants from us. And he will perform it to the very end. So that's how Paul is confident that he that began this good work will perform it. And we don't work out our salvation because we doubt that we might not have salvation. But we, with humility of mind, knowing that any good that we do is not because of our own strength, but all the good that we do is because God has given us the the desire to do it, and God has given us the power and the strength to do it. So this is not telling us that that we're going to lose our salvation. It's reminding us that everything we have is by God's grace. Praise the Lord that he is with us and and he promised that we won't lose our salvation because he begins the work, he maintains the work, and he will perform that work until the end. I have some I had some other scriptures, but I think that will suffice us. Uh, the Lord is faithful, Paul said in Second Thessalonians three three. Who, will, who shall establish you and keep you from evil. Paul said in 2 Timothy 1.12, He is not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. He knows who he trusted in and persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. Why does Paul believe that he will be saved? Well, it's because he knows who he believed in. I know who I'm trusting in. Paul, why do you think you're going to go to heaven, Paul? Why do you think that you're saved? Why do you think you're not going to be judged for your sin? Well, I know who I believed in. And if you knew who I believed in, then you wouldn't have to ask that question. I'm not ashamed of the things I suffer, Paul said. I'm not ashamed of going to jail for the gospel. I'm not ashamed of of being whipped and and laughed at and mocked for the gospel. I'm not ashamed because I know who I believed in. I know who I put my trust in. And I am persuaded, Paul said, that he is able. I'm persuaded that he can keep me, that he will protect me, that he will, by his power, preserve me all the way to the end. I've given him, I'm resting my soul in the person of Jesus Christ. And I'm persuaded more than anything else in this world that that he will keep me all the way to the end.
Paul, confidence is not in his grip upon Jesus, but his confidence is in Jesus' grip upon him. It's like whenever, you know, a little child, you pick a little child up and you might be swinging them around, playing with them, and they, they get scared and they grab a hold of your arm. Well, they're hanging on with dear life, but, you know, dad's not going to drop them. They can let go or, or whatever, but, but dad's not going to drop them. I used to take the boys and I'd... I was kind of rough with them when we'd rough house and uh, so forth, but uh, one of my family members, their little boy, um, he, he didn't like to rough house. I didn't know that, and I went and I grabbed him and I started uh, rough housing with him, and that uh, gave the little fellow a heart attack, I think, because he, he didn't like it very much. And, but I picked him up, and he tightened up and, and grabbed a hold of me and just uh, was getting nervous. He thought I was going to drop him. Well, I wasn't going to drop him. I had a hold of him, but he was still hanging on. So, you know, that's how, that's how the child of God might do. We, we hang on to Christ. I know, we believe in him. We rest in him. We, we, we cling to the cross of Christ. But in reality, it's him. He'll never, he'll never let us go. We are safe and protected in Christ. Well, let's think of a few uh, proofs from analysis of, of other doctrines of Scripture. So there are many other texts we could have viewed, but I think that, that'll suffice us for tonight uh, just to, sh- to see that this truth is taught explicitly in Scripture. But let's think about a few other doctrines that we've studied in um, our look at the doctrines of grace. Well, the decree of God and the covenant of redemption, that before the foundations of the world, before the earth was created, God, the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit covenanted together in their plan of redemption, that the Father chose the people into salvation, the Son um, would come and give his life for those people. He would die for them. He would redeem them and pay for their sins. And the Spirit would come and give them life and quicken them unto life. Well, what was the plan of God? It's not just that we would believe in Jesus. That's not the end of salvation. Some might portray it that way, that if you come to the front and you make a profession, well, that's the, the end of it. That's, that's the whole purpose. Well, no, the purpose is that we would be before our Father, holy and without blame. And so this is just one part of that long process of, of glorification. You know, it's not over until we're glorified. That, that's the end, the, that inheritance that we have. You know, uh, it says that in First Peter that we are kept by God, um, that inheritance was prepared for us, and we are kept for that inheritance. So just considering the covenant of redemption that God willed a people to be with him in eternity, prepared a place for them, uh, provides a inheritance for them, well, it stands to reason that the Spirit of God will see that work all the way through the end, to the end. What, what, what crime that would be to the, the covenant of redemption? 
if the Father had chosen a people and the Son had died for a people, the Spirit had quickened the people, and then all the way at the very last step, at the border of eternity, they failed. A work that had begun in the counsel of God in eternity past gets to the very last and then, and then fails. No, God will see this, his plan come to fruition. And we think about um, the end to which we were chosen. So the covenant of redemption and um, election. If we think about election, that would, would uh, show us that this uh, is true. The last two verses of the book of Jude says this. Now unto him, now it's God, unto God, that is able to keep you from falling. So Paul trusted in Christ, who was able to keep him, keep that which he had committed to him. Here it says that him who is able to keep us from falling. He's able to keep us from stumbling, from, from falling away. and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty and dominion and power both now and forever. Oh, what a, what a doxology that is. What praise we have for our sovereign God. Him who is able to keep us from falling. The longer that I live, the less confidence I have in myself that I am able to keep myself from falling. The more that, that, the, more that the Lord shows you your weakness, the more that you know that if it weren't for God's grace, you'd just fall away. See, that's one problem with always looking inside to, to have your confidence and your assurance in the inside. Because the thing about this, the longer that you live in Christ, the closer you'll be drawn to Christ. And the more that you'll learn about the law, about yourself, about your sin, and the more God will work in you to mortify your sin. And the more you'll see the sin in your heart. Right? So it, the, the more, it's, all, it's almost as if the, the more, the closer you get to the Lord, the more sin that you'll see in your life. And so we're not very good at judging ourselves. Because when you're first saved, you might not know a whole lot about sin and the nature of sin and the nature of your own heart and the corruption of your own heart. But the more you learn about the holiness of God and the more you learn about the corruption of your own flesh, the more sin you're going to see in yourself. So you, 
you might be much closer to the Lord and, and have put off much more sin than when you first believed, but, but you might look at yourself and say, well, I haven't progressed any at all, and I have less confidence in myself now than I did when I, uh, you know, 5, 10, 20 years ago. Because our confidence is not in ourselves, you see. It is to Him who is able to keep us from falling. It is to Him who will present us faultless. Now, it's too late for me to be faultless. I, I just, I, it's too late. I could have started this morning. And said, all right, we're going to start over at zero this morning. Uh, it's too late. I'm not faultless today. How is he going to present us faultless? Well, it's that work of God in the gospel. That we have to have righteousness. And I don't have righteousness. Well, I do have righteousness, but it's, it's, uh, it's less valuable than a pile of manure, as Paul tells us in Philippians. It has that much value. But in Christ, my sins are forgiven. I have his righteousness given to me. It's on my account. And so he can keep me from falling away by giving me faith and grace to believe in him. And then he can present me faultless by the work of Christ. And then he'll bring me before his presence with exceeding joy. And I'm not sure if that's our joy or, or the Lord's joy, but it will be with exceeding joy. It's joyful to think about now. It belongs to us. So how are we going to fall away? It already belongs to us. You think about it this way. Uh, let's say you're going on a trip and you get to wherever you're going, you have car problems. And, and you, you uh, fix your car. And while you're waiting for your car to be fixed, somebody steals your wallet, takes all your cash. And so your car problems drains your bank account. And the cash that you had for the trip has been stolen. Your credit cards are gone. You've got nothing. And there you are thousands of miles away from home. You don't have anything. Well, you call your friend and, and tell him your situation and say, well, no problem. Let me call the bank and I'll wire you some money. And I'll take this money and I'll put it right in your bank account. Well, that money belongs to you now. Someone had taken their money and given it to you and now it's in your account. It's not a borrowed amount, but it belongs to you. And now you have sufficient funds to get back home. Well, Christ, the, the wages of sin is death. We're, we don't have anything. And the requirements to enter into the kingdom of heaven is perfect righteousness, and we don't have that. So God has imputed his righteousness or put it on our account, and now that belongs to me. And so I can go, to, I can enter into heaven faultless because God had given me his righteousness and put that on my account. Did Christ finish his work for us? Then there could be no doubt. 
He will finish his work in us, John Flavel said. Christ's intercessory work as our great high priest at the right hand of the Father now praying for his people, interceding on our behalf. The only way we could fall is if Christ's intercession failed. Therefore we are saved to the uttermost, it tells us, because of Christ. The Bible tells us we are adopted. Are we adopted in the family only be excluded? Did God the Father choose us, bring us into the family? And then because of um, our sin or our rebellion, kick us out of the family? Well, that's not how it works, is it? Once a child has been adopted, they are in the family. And there is no distinction between um, a son of natural generation or a son of adoption. They are sons. And there is no distinction. And so we are sons by adoption. And the father will not exclude his son. He will not cast his son aside. So we are safe um, in the adoption that we have in God. We have the work of the Holy Spirit. It is a monergistic word. So I said at the beginning, synergistic is people working together with God. I believe it is a monergistic work of the Spirit. So if we look in the first verse of Jude, if you're still there, it says Jude the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified by God the Father, to those who are set apart by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. We are sanctified by God, we are preserved by God, and we are called by God. He set us apart, he has made us holy in this usage of the word sanctified. We are preserved and kept and protected in Jesus Christ. We are called um, by, effectually by the, the Holy Spirit. How can we fall away when the Father has set us apart, the Son is preserving us, and the Spirit is indwelling us? Jesus promises everlasting life. Romans chapter 8 declares there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and then talks about us being in the Son or being in the Spirit, rather, walking in the Spirit, because we are dead in the flesh, joint heirs with Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. All these things are, are true in us and for us. Well, let's... let's um, I'll, I'll read that uh, passage in Romans 8, and then we'll, then we'll close. I thought we would get to the warning passages, but... Uh, we might, we might look at that another time. Romans chapter number 8. This would be a good way to close it this evening. Romans chapter number 8. Verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called and whom he called, them he justified, and then he justified, then he glorified. So from before the foundation of the world to, to eternity, God has taken care of every step of the way that we would be glorified. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? 
He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give, or also freely, freely give us all things? Who shall lay any charge to God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God who maketh intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Verse 38, I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels or principalities, nor powers or things present or things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This doctrine is a source of great comfort. It's a source of great power for us, an incentive to gratitude, motive, self-sacrifice, and a pillar of fire in an hour of danger, Hovey said. This doctrine, along with many other great doctrines um, that we've looked at for the last two months now, bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ. I take much comfort in knowing that I have a sovereign God and I can rest in the promises of my God and he will do what he promised to do. I'm safe in Christ. Nothing can separate me from the Father's love or the Savior's hand. Augustine said, Grace may be shaken with fears and doubts, but it cannot be plucked up by the roots. You might worry about your salvation. You might have times of doubts and tremblings because of your sinfulness, but God's not doubting. God's not wondering. He who begun a good work in you will see it all the way to the end. So rest and have confidence in what God has done for you and for his glory.